0: Welcome to day 74 of The Story That Changes Everything. Our readings for today are chapters 4 through 6 of Judges and Psalm 31. Here's some thoughts to guide your reading for today. Chapters 4 and 5 of Judges tell the story of Deborah, Barak, JL, and Sisera in two different forms. Chapter 4 tells the story in narrative and chapter 5 retells it in poetry. Chapter 4 opens with the typical format or narrative cycle for Judges, the previous judge, Ahud, died, and the people went right back to doing evil. So, God raises up an enemy, this time King Jabin of Canaan and his army commander Sisera who oppressed the people. The Israelites then cry out to the Lord, this time after 20 years of oppression, and God will raise up a judge. Notice in this opening that the narrator mentions the chariots that Sisera and the Canaanites have as weapons of war. Those chariots would have been the highest form of military technology in the day, and it made defeating the army of Sisera just about unthinkable without similar means of fighting back. The judge God raises up is Deborah, who is described in the text as a prophet and will be a major judge to lead God's deliverance of the people. There's a potential play on words in the verse that mentions her. The text describes her as the wife of Lapidoth, The name Lapidoth means torch or light or perhaps flashing. It's a highly unusual name, leading some scholars to argue that it's not a name at all, but a nickname for Deborah, that she may not just be a prophet and a judge, but she may be a fiery leader. Deborah gets a prophetic word from the Lord and calls up Barak from the tribe of Naphtali, whose name means lightning, and she calls him to lead 10,000 men from his tribe and from Zebulun, To go and defeat Sisera at the Wadi Kishon. Now the word Wadi can mean river, but it more likely means a dry or muddy channel through which rainwater runs off the mountains. It will become important later in the story. We aren't told in the text why Beric responds with such a half-hearted and fearful response. It may be that part of the downward spiral being narrated as the book goes along includes a lack of courage and a lack of faith on the part of the leaders. Barak's answer to Deborah is certainly wimpy, but in the next story, it will take multiple signs for Gideon to have the courage and faith to respond to God's call. So Deborah agrees to go with Barak, but the glory of the victory will go to a woman. At this point in the story, the narrator is leading us to assume that it will be Deborah who gets the glory. We aren't given many details in chapter four, but in the poem of chapter five, it appears that when Sisera and his army of chariots came out to confront Deborah and Barak at the Wadi Kishon, that God made it rain and their chariots got stuck in the mud. That would make sense as to why Sisera had to get down out of his chariot and flee on foot. It's not clear why JL chose to lure Sisera into her tent. She's not an Israelite and Her people were living in peace with King Jabin, so why risk her life and kill Sisera in such a unique and dramatic way? It appears that J.L. is one more example in the book of Judges of an outsider to the story, trusting Yahweh and trusting the power of God and even the future of God's people, sometimes even more than the Israelites seem to trust God. Although Barak is mentioned in the opening verse of chapter 5, the poem or hymn that makes up this chapter primarily celebrates and gives glory, as Deborah predicted, to the two women in the story, Deborah and J.L. This poem is quite unique and very hard to translate. In fact, many scholars think it may be some of the oldest literature in the Bible. It's possible that this poem may have existed for centuries before the narratives around it were crafted. Let me give you a quick example of the challenge of translating this poem. The opening line, verse 2, is translated this way in the Common English Bible. When hair is long in Israel. In the NRSV, it says, when locks are long in Israel. But here's how the NIV translates it. When the princes in Israel take the lead. And similarly, the New American Standard translates it for the leaders leading in Israel. Although in the NASB, they give you a footnote that says, or it could be, the hair hanging free. Um, I love what Eugene Peterson does in the message. He expands it and makes it this. When they let down their hair in Israel, they let it blow wild in the wind. The point is, it's kind of hard to figure out what some of these ancient words and the ways that they're put together mean. It may be that letting one's hair down is something a leader would do. And it's kind of the cultural equivalent of putting on war paint. It's preparation for battle in ancient Israel. There are a couple of things in this unique poem that I would draw your attention to. The first is in verse 24, where it says, May J.L. be blessed above all women. There's a great deal of ancient Christian speculation on this verse because it sounds so much like what's called the Magnificat, the blessing upon Mary in Luke's gospel. The question is, is J.L. a kind of precursor to Mary? Is she, like Mary, this unknown woman from the margins who becomes the source of God's victory over evil in the world? Perhaps. Or it may be that their blessings are just very similar to each other. Also notice that besides Deborah and Jael, there's one other woman mentioned in the poem, Sisera's mother. Sisera's mother waits by the window for his return, not knowing that he's already dead, And while she waits, she speculates that maybe he's delayed because he must be dividing up the loot or even taking the Israelite women captive. While she's thinking that, she's unaware that God has brought about a great reversal, that those who were oppressed in these ways that she is thinking and dreaming and imagining with God's help have actually turned the tables of injustice. It's such a dramatic part of this text and this poem. Chapter 6 opens with the same cycle. The people fall back into sinful patterns. God raises up an enemy to oppress them. This time, it's the Midianites. The text says that the Midianites would sweep down during harvest time and take everything for themselves, forcing the people even to flee and to live in caves for protection. So, again, God calls up a judge. This time, it's Gideon that God raises up. The messenger of the Lord calls him while he's threshing wheat in a wine press. Now, ancient readers would know something's wrong here. Threshing was done in wide open spaces, not in cramped quarters like a wine press. In fact, the common English Bible recognizes this and translates the end of verse 11 this way Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to hide it from the Midianites. That's why it's so humorous that in the next verse, the Lord's messenger addresses him as mighty warrior because he is clearly far from that. In fact, the four stories in chapter 6 about Gideon are meant to demonstrate he's not much of a warrior. Instead, he's really shaped by fear and a lack of faith. First, God devours the sacrifice as a sign that his spirit is upon Gideon. Then, God tells him to tear down the altar to Baal and the Asherah pole, which he does, but he does it in the middle of the night. Even still, God protects him. But still not sure he should go, Gideon goes through his two famous fleece tests with God. And God, interestingly, relents and fulfills both signs. Now, it's important to understand that Gideon's fleece is not meant to be a paradigmatic story for how to test God's will. Growing up in church, it wasn't unusual to hear someone say, well, I'm not sure what the right thing is to do, so I'm I'm putting out a fleece for God. Now, God may, in fact, respond to that person's fleece, whatever it may be. But the point of this story in Judges is not that Gideon has found this great way to discern God's will. But if you thought Barak was wimpy and faithless, check out Gideon. He gets four signs of affirmation from God in one chapter, and he's still not sure he wants to go. But as we will see in tomorrow's text, perhaps the tests don't just run one direction. Maybe it's not just Gideon who tests God, but maybe God has a test for Gideon also, but that's tomorrow. Our psalm text for today, Psalm 31, is a magnificent poem that celebrates the refuge we find in God. It's full of wonderful lines of prayer and faith. Two interesting historical notes about this psalm. First, it may be the psalm that actually led to the Reformation. In studying this psalm, Martin Luther was troubled by the end of verse 1, which reads, Rescue me by your righteousness. Early in his life, Luther could not figure out how in the world God's righteousness could be a source of rescue. He could only think of it as a source of condemnation. But that puzzle, how God's righteousness could be the source of rescue, led Luther ultimately to wrestle with grace. Secondly, you may have caught it as you read through the psalm, but verse 5 is the prayer Jesus prays on the cross. I entrust my spirit into your hands. This line is quoted in the Gospel of Luke, and it's considered the final of the seven last words of Jesus. Well, these are weird, wild, but still often beautiful texts for today. The JL story maybe ought to at least get a PG-13 rating. But nevertheless, these texts reveal a lot about our challenges with faith. They also tell us a lot about God's responsive patience. So read these colorful texts carefully, looking for things you've never seen before. Journal your thoughts, prayers, and questions. And if you ever ask somebody for water and they give you a bowl of milk instead, whatever you do, don't fall asleep. Our readings for tomorrow are Judges chapters 7 through 9. And tomorrow, we'll drink like dogs. I'll talk to you tomorrow.